Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Relations between Russia and the Western world are complicated. In the grand scheme of things... America is but a recent addition to a long-simmering rivalry that runs back a thousand years. Putin and Ukraine? Well, that's just the latest dust-up in a very long history. So, let's talk about it. Here with us today to suss out all of this is Michael Hirsch. He's a senior correspondent at Foreign Policy and the author of an excellent piece, Putin's Thousand-Year War. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. I just want to say first about the piece is just you provide a context that I think is is really missing from the discussion in a lot of places. So thanks just for writing it. Oh, well, thank you for highlighting it. I appreciate it. I, I do think it's uh, a long bit of history that needs to be dis- discussed. Let's start with a very basic question. Where does the West end and Russia begin? Is uh, Russia not at times part of the West? <laughs> Well, that really goes to the heart of the issue, I think, in a lot of ways, because oddly enough, Russia, of all the major countries in the world, is one that still can't can't quite figure out what its borders are. It's really remarkable to think so. Imagine we we hadn't yet figured out whether we really wanted Texas to be part of the United States, (laughs) or we were still debating it. That's like where they are. And that's Part of what's at issue right now is that the Russians, the Russian state, with a couple of brief exceptions, the Kerensky democracy right after the revolution of 1917, and then the brief period with Boris Yeltsin right after the Cold War, with with those exceptions, Russia has always been an empire that has been constantly trying to expand it westward. And at the same time, as you alluded to, there's always been this identity crisis. It's this vast land that straddles Asia and and Europe. It was conquered and occupied by the Mongols for hundreds of years and has always had this ongoing flirtation, both Europe and with Asia or its Asian identity. Uh, And I think in a very real sense, that's part of what's at play now. And at least Vladimir Putin's mind is, okay, we we were, we were rolled back after the Cold War, seriously rolled back, NATO encroaching on our borders. It's now time to reestablish the Russian imperium of the glorious past. 
Yeah, central to your piece, and I think part of central to what's going on, what's playing out right now, is this idea of Eurasianism. If I'm saying yeah. that correctly, can you explain yeah. what exactly that means? Yeah, this is an ideology or philosophy that goes back uh, more than a hundred years, and basically is the idea that Russia should be a Eurasian empire. And to go back to the previous answer, straddling both Europe and Asia. And that should be a kind of bulwark against West, the Western values. And this is a fight that goes back to the Enlightenment. This goes back to the idea that rather than embracing Western-style liberal democracy, Russia should stand up for these old Tsarist values. There was a, a, a dictum that was uh, created in the early 1900s, I'm sorry, the early 19th century by the uh, education advisor, Tsar Nicholas I, which was orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationalism. It was specifically designed as an answer to, to the French motto of liber- liberty, equality, and, and fraternity, the French Revolution. So there's very much this separate identity that the Eurasianist philosophy seeks to, seeks to unfold and to promote. And all the evidence is based on the kinds of things Putin has said uh, over the years that he's very much influenced influenced by this. That he is uh, very profoundly a, a Eurasianist. Well, let me just have a follow up. Sorry, but specifically sure. on Eurasianism, is this why I feel like Alexander Dugan is somebody that falls in and out of fashion in Western circles as far as like being talked about being a yeah. central part of like the ideology behind all of this? Do you I hear some people say? That this guy is like he's the, the the guy that whispers in Putin ear, his in Putin's ear. He's a great vizier. He's he's this that and the other. And then for a few years it'll be like, well, he's a joke. No one really listens to Alexander Dugan. Yeah. And now I'm hearing again Alexander Dugan's name come up and this idea of Eurasianism and neo Eurasianism come up again. Do yeah. you, what do you think? What do you make of Dugan? Do you think he has any part in this, or is he you know like what's the deal? I think that he has never been close to Putin. And you're right, he has been in and out of fashion. There was a period when he was thought to be a Kremlin advisor, and then he was cast out. It's not just Dugan. Dugan is just one of the names. And some of these names go back 200 years. They're long dead. Ivan Ilyin, for example, who is this mystical philosopher of Eurasianism of a century ago. Difficult to gauge how much Putin is actually an intellectual who has absorbed, read, and studied the writings of of, of many of these people or, or versus someone who is just picking it up willy-nilly, which I, I tend to think is the case. I don't think that Putin is some sort of an intellectual or ideologist in his own right. I think he's just if you look at particularly that more than 5,000 word essay that he published in July of last year, which kind of really sums up a lot of these views, I think it's just bits and pieces from Alexander Dugan, Ilyin, and others. So I don't think there's really any coherent philosophy beyond his being a very fervent Russian nationalist who believes that Russia and its destiny is to be a Eurasian empire. And his destiny as Russia's leader is to restore that. I, I think that it really comes down to, to that pretty simply. One thing that you also mentioned was part of the tripartite slogan is autocracy, yeah. which is very hard for people in the West to imagine as a good thing. Do you think that it's built into the Russian psyche that there should be a czar and a good czar and that Putin fits into that too? I think that what we're learning about this invasion, which is still very surprising in many respects, 
is just how different the Russian mindset is from ours. Uh, Russia is a land that has suffered disastrous invasions from Napoleons in the early 19th century to the catastrophic invasion of Nazi Germany. And they this is a trauma that they live with, a kind of trauma that we don't really uh, understand. And I think that in the Russian mind, it helps to justify the idea that we need to be an empire. We need, again, strategic depth. Uh, we need we need to create these buffer zones, including territories like Ukraine, which they consider just a territory. And uh, the other aspect of that is that Russia continues to be a place made up of many sort of ethnic groups and nationalities, some of which have even adopted their own desire for self-determination along the lines of what Ukraine you know, has done since the end of the Cold War, at least. And, you know, there are a sense among some scholars, for example, Peter Yeltsov of National Defense University, that if Russia were truly to become a democracy, it would split apart. There's too, there's too, money, too much of a yearning for self-determination among these many subgroups. So there's a historical sense in which Russia may be, at least Quay Russia, as, as, as the Russian Federation, as it's now presently constituted, may be doomed to autocracy. We don't know, but all I can say is if you look at the polls up until at least this invasion, Putin continued to be very popular. And this was through all these periods when he was clearly killing off his opponents, like Boris Nemtsov, who was, who was murdered literally within the shadow of the Kremlin several years ago. I don't know. Figure it out. But what does that mean if, if, if you have someone like Putin who is becoming an autocrat and indeed almost a totalitarian particularly in the last few weeks, and he has the support of the Russian people, then I think we have to ask ourselves, maybe that's what the Russian people want. Well, I would say that I think there's two, two, two points I would make here. One is that I think some people would say those polls are juiced, right? They are not perhaps accurate, but I would also say the that Russian election was, yeah, 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 as the Russian, yeah, exactly. As the Russian election was, but on the other hand, and we've had guests um, on the show that have made this point in the past, AP bureau chief in in Russia somewhere, I can't remember her name, wrote an excellent book called Putin's Country. But the the Western conception of Russia often stops at the Ural Mountains, right? Like we don't think about that vast tract of land filled with people beyond Moscow and St. Petersburg and yeah. how very different the culture is in a very large country, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, we don't. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's difficult to say what the real sentiments might be, particularly in those places out there that are, so, that are probably still unpolled. But at the same time, we have to note the absence of any real revolutionary fervor, at least up until now. And he, while some of these liberal opponents have been killed off, they're not perhaps quite as liberal as we in the West sometimes see. Even Nemtsov, who was perhaps the dominant opponent to, to Putin, uh, came out in favor of a constitutional monarchy in, in one point for Russia. So it, 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 it's a very different mindset, I think. And that's not to say there aren't many liberals and liberal-leaning people inside Russia. It's just that at least for the present, they don't seem to be the majority. We'll have to see what, what happens in, in coming weeks. Obviously, in a place like Russia, you can't rule out the possibility of revolution, even as we have to look at Vladimir Putin as only the latest czar. 
So will he suffer the fate of Tsar Nicholas II? Who knows? But, but right now, we don't see that happening. Is there, do you think, a natural antipathy between Russia and the West that it's just there? It's baked in? Yeah, I, I, I think that we have to wrap our minds around that, that is, we in the West at long last. Going back to Woodrow Wilson after World War One, Wilson thought of the Russians as a fundamentally democratic and said so even after the, the 1917 revolution. And then moving fast forward up until the post-Cold War period when you had many senior U.S. officials, I can remember in particular Deputy Secretary of State Strobe Talbot, who himself is a Russia expert. He actually translated Khrushchev's memoirs, and I used to speak to him quite often when I was with Newsweek magazine, but was saying it's just a matter of time before Russian democracy really blossoms. There was a sense, and this is somewhat analogous to the way that we, we, we China as well, there was a sense that it was only a matter of time before they were going to sign on, right, to the liberal democratic capitalist model. And I think it's really time to tell ourselves, no, that's not going to happen, and it's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. And this is not going to be exactly like the Cold War. It's a different kind of struggle, but it is going to be a long-term struggle. It's going to be, I think, a battle between Western values and a nation-state slash empire, if you will, that views the world in a very different way. Even if Putin is ousted, uh, frankly, whoever is likely to take his place is, is probably going to be a Eurasianist as well, to some degree. All of the people around him see things in the same way. And I think we just have to be realistic at long last and say to ourselves, OK, this is this isn't going away no matter what happens in Ukraine. Yeah, it's hard for me personally to even think of. What's yeah. that? I said it's it's grim. It's 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 unpleasant to have to think that way. But sometimes you have to confront rude realities. And I think that for the United States, it's very hard because we, of course, think that we're the best or our system is the best. That everyone should be our kind of democracy as well as that's currently working out. But we also had this image at the end of the Soviet Union that everyone wanted genes, right? That you would like bring blue jeans to Moscow and you could sell them and everyone wanted them and not that was, it wasn't that they didn't like rock and roll. It was they were just behind us. But they also did – they did want the genes though. They did want like the that, genes, you right? Know, they, and, and salami. I have learned a lot about salami recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Burger King, which you know is, 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 is insisting that it's going to keep its outlets there in Russia right now. Yeah, I, I know, but it seems to me that we sort of too in a too facile way we kind of like mapped or we extrapolated from that desire for genes and for rock and roll, pussy riot, all of that, and just thought, okay, well, it's just a matter of time till they become like us. But it seems like it's very possible, and of course, we also see this in authoritarian China to want and to get the genes and the rock and roll, and to prefer a very different system of government and a different, a, a different culture. And I think that we need to confront that, this whole concept of the civilization state, that we, it's, not just, it's not just Russia, it's also China, it's India under, under Modi as well, which is becoming increasingly authoritarian. I think we have to reconcile ourselves to the idea that, yeah, there is a separate West that embraces the Enlightenment that's had its own separate history, but, you know, 
not everyone's going to become like us. Well, so I, I, guess- I feel like I'm the grim reaper here. I don't know. Is- oh, oh, this oh, is a huh? this is a down note show. Trust me, you're you're. <laughs> this is this is typical for us. You're good. I I try. I believe me. I do look for the optimistic. I, I do I do try to to be as positive as I can. But I think at this juncture, it's 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 hard to do so. No, I think I I, I agree with that, and I think that there's a. We've got so much blinding optimism in America specifically that I think it's really good to confront some of this stuff head on and have the tough conversations and like really try to understand the long history of a country that is not our own and really put some context around this stuff. And I think when you have uh, a, what I would call, I guess, a rising imperial power, maybe rising is the wrong word, an imperial power that's tried to reclaim its 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 past in some way that is killing civilians and losing its own soldiers at the rate that it is in Ukraine. I think like these are the kind of conversations we need to have. And it's, it's a grim time. Right? Well, on that note, I would like to, to strike one, uh, say, say a couple positive things. One, Russia is not a great empire. Okay. It's the 11th largest economy in the world. It's shrunk to a size approximately of Spain in economic terms. And the other thing that we've seen, particularly in the last few weeks, is a sort of reaffirmation of the West and Western values to a remarkable degree that we haven't seen really since the end of the Cold War. And I think in the, in the international system as a whole, the international community, which is such an ill-defined thing, has come together with the exception of a couple countries that are still aligned with Russia, like India, to condemn this aggression and to isolate Russia economically in a way that has never been done before to any country. The Iran sanctions, for example, are child's play compared to what we are seeing against the Russian economy right now. So I think that's a pretty positive sign. There's a large civilization of our own out there that we are defending. People are stepping up in a way that we haven't seen. You're even seeing glimmers of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill, which perhaps is the most amazing thing of all. So there, there, are, there are some positive things to come out of it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I was wondering about, you had mentioned in your piece that Sometimes Russia makes an effort to head west and they try to reform, but they seem to get snapped back. Um, And of course, I guess after the end of the Cold War, it's another period like that. But could you talk a little bit about 
let's say, Peter the Great and these efforts to leap west? Yeah, Peter the Great, of course, was a great enthusiast for the West, Western values. You know, he imposed a beard tax, actually, and ordered his his boyars or lords to, to, to shave themselves so they could look like Europeans. There's a lot of interbreeding at that time and afterwards with European aristocracy and royalty. And he sought to modernize Russia's military and economy by uh, emulating the West. And Catherine the Great, his descendant, at least by marriage, she was Prussian born, but she also sought to bring the Russian state toward the West. Excuse me, she was a great fan of Diderot, the French Enlightenment philosopher and uh, considered Voltaire to be her hero. And during the early years of her reign, was quite an enthusiast for parliamentary reforms. But she got a lot of pushback from the Russian nobles. And she ended up, of course, being a, a great conqueror herself of Western lands. And so by the same token, fast forwarding ahead hundreds of years, there was right after the Cold War, Uh, a lot of enthusiasm for Western-style economic reforms. They called it shock therapy at the time. Let's open up and liberalize our economy. But it always seemed to fall on hard times. Most recent period, right after the Cold War, for example, uh, shock therapy privatization turned into what the Russians wryly called grabification. And most of the wealth of the former state-owned communist enterprises fell into the hands of the oligarchs. And One of the historical ironies is that uh, Vladimir Putin, who then was just this obscure deputy, former deputy mayor of of St. Petersburg, rose to power, really decrying the power of the oligarchs. And he began to take them out. And of course, later on, he installed his own oligarchs, mostly his former KGB pals. But uh, but the fact is, westernizing reforms to get back to the to the point of what you were asking, have often seemed to backfire in Russian politics. And that goes all the way back to Peter the Great. Peter the Great's reformers today, even though he's revered in this as this he's, this, he's this lionized figure in Russian history. What he did in terms of turning toward the West is seen in Vladimir Putin's Russia today as a fifth column, to use one of uh, Putin's favorite terms. Let's talk about Putin now, the, the person that's at the, 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 the center of this current war. If Putin was telling the story of Russian history, how do you think it would go? I know you've teased on in the answer to that last question. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be about what he calls the West's anti-Russia prod. And he does tend to focus on the Cold War. But remember, Putin is no communist. He worked for the KGB, but particularly in his most recent speech, the one he delivered three days before the invasion, he made a point of saying, look, Stalin and Lenin were wrong particularly vis-a-vis Ukraine, and they made a lot of mistakes during the Soviet period. This is more about Russian national power. But for Putin, he's 69 years old. This also is about what's happened since he came into power 20 years ago and the constant encroachment, as he sees it, of NATO moving westward. And I think that a key moment for him was the Bucharest Memorandum of 2008, which essentially said that Ukraine and Georgia would someday join NATO without laying out any kind of specific plan. Of course, what we had after that was his incursion into Georgia, which he accomplished in only a few days, but occupied a a couple of so-called separate provinces. And and then Ukraine has been a burr in his side. And of course, the Maidan revolution of, 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 of almost a decade ago 
was really key in making him realize that he might not be able to wrestle this country to the ground in the same way he has, say, Belarus, that they actually have these Western-leaning yearnings. And, and, and what we've seen then has really been a consequence of that. So uh, I, I think that he sees this both as part of this grand Eurasian project of reestablishing Russia's empire, Russian glory, Russian greatness, going back to the czars. But at the same time, I, I think he sees it as a more immediate response to the, what the injustices uh, of uh, the United States and the Western European nations, in particular NATO, in pushing up against what he sees as rightfully Russia's borders, Russia's territorial zone, Russia's sphere of influence. And, and I think it comes down at a per, very personal level for him to a sense of humiliation. Why are they, why are they humiliating us? How dare they humiliate us? We are, you know, we are, we are Russia. We are a great power. Uh, you see this, this theme come out in many of his speeches. And I think that's one of the reasons also he's been popular up till now, because a lot of Russians have shared that sense of injustice after the Cold War. So you write in the piece, to piggyback off of that, that Putin may see this current conflict as also a continuation of World War II. Like, how does that make sense? Well, it, it, it is bizarre. It's mind-jarring. We were all trying to get our heads around it. Okay, Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish, the, head, the president of Ukraine. So how does this add up to denazifying Ukraine? Again, it goes back to history. A substantial portion of the Ukrainian population at the outset of World War II did ally with the Nazis. There were a lot of fascists, including uh, a couple of the national heroes of Ukraine presently, whose statues you can see on the streets of Kiev and other and other major cities were allied with the Nazis and were actually uh, anti-Semitic in very in very real ways. There are a lot of pogroms in in Ukraine, obviously most notoriously Babin Yar, which you recall was uh, the memorial was bombed in the very early days of the invasion, where more than 30,000 Jews were killed by Ukrainian fascists and Nazis. So I think even though Ukraine has obviously changed so dramatically since then, Putin sees this as a continuation of the Russian victory. And, and recall that Putin is someone who has portrayed in his speeches in recent years the victory in World War II as a Russian one. He's actually gradually eliminated the Allies entirely, the United States entirely from that victory. And that is the last great, glorious Russian Recall that, right? I mean, they haven't had any big wins since then. You don't, you know, I don't want to really want to count Syria. That's not much of a win. But that was their that was their great struggle against Hitler, against the Nazis. Many Russians identify with that. Putin's, Putin's own father fought in World War II. He carries his picture every year when they have this annual parade to commemorate the the victory. And I think for him, he to some extent really sees it that way. He sees himself as not only enfolding Ukraine into the Russian sphere of influence, but purging it, to use that terrible word we just heard uh, him say the other day, purging it of these fascist elements, as he still says. I, I, I think it's a delusional point of view, but I think that he probably really, really believes that it's true. I also, I always appreciate an article that mentions Vladislav Surkov, <laughs> um, which is another kind of one of these figures kind of like Alexander Dugan that, floats in and out of Russia watchers consciousness. Can you yeah. tell the audience who he is, why he's important and how kind of his role in shaping what I would say is Russia's modern self-conception? 
Well, he's, again, one of these figures, it's difficult to say how much influence he's had. He's been seen as the Kremlin's ideologist in the past, perhaps not so much in recent years. He's become a commentator. But if you look at some of his writings and what we know about his his personal relationship with Putin, it's almost as if he's been Putin's alter ego. And one of the things I quote in the piece that I think was really telling is that after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, Surkov uh, wrote that this was finally uh, a break with the West. This was Russia's way of saying we are not going to be embracing Western civilization any longer. We are going to be going off on our own. And we know that we might have to suffer, suffer from geopolitical isolation for at least the next hundred years. This is what he wrote at the time. And to me, that suggested that it was like Putin and his circle were preparing for this moment, perhaps for longer than any of us realize. I don't think that Putin quite thought this was going to be this bad in terms of the economic isolation. But I think they were preparing themselves for the idea, and this is what Surkov laid out, that this was going to be this long-term struggle between the West and Russia. And uh, so Surkov has certainly given us a lot of, he's, he's prefigured in many ways in his writings what's happening now. He's extremely fascinating to me because he's this person that is extremely good at making you think that he's important and powerful when perhaps he is not. Well, and like I, Alexander Dugan and some of these others, they're all, they're all very good at that, you know? Yeah. And I would, and I would argue that like perhaps Russia has mm. in, in the past 20 years in Putin's Russia specifically, right. Has made it, has done a very good job of making itself seem extremely powerful and scary. And I think we're finding out now that it's military can't do things like fight at night, or supplied yeah. soldiers with food. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I don't want to finish on too much of a downer note, <laughs> but all of that is true with the signal exception that he still commands a vast nuclear arsenal that he's uh, reminded us all too chillingly that could come into play in extreme circumstances. And he's got something on us that Hitler didn't have, frankly, and that worries me a little bit, not too much. But it does worry me a little bit. And you're right, everything you said about the weakness of his military being made manifest, but that kind of worries me even more somehow. So, I don't know. Hopefully, uh, survive. The last question I have is, this would seem to make it impossible for the United States to pivot to Asia, or I guess to face off with China, as we've been planning to do now for three administrations. Does the United States, do you think really now face two powers and how does mm. how does that make you feel <laughs> <laughs> well i wrote about that uh, recently actually before the invasion uh, on the anniversary of nixon's opening to china which happened 50 years ago in february and raising the question is this is there something we can do to get around this the way nixon did which is to split moscow from from beijing and i think that actually the the invasion may afford us that opportunity to, to some degree. I do think that Russia and China will remain aligned, but perhaps not as much as Putin wanted. Xi Jinping, even though he hates U.S. dominance as much as, as Putin does, his economy is much more integrated into the global economy. He, China could not afford, for example, the kind of economic isolation that Russia is now undergoing. 
So I, <clears throat> I do think there may be a way to navigate that and perhaps to at least some split China from Russia through by basically telling them, look, you really can't afford to have all of your companies banned from the European Union and the United States the way Russia now is. And it's going to be interesting to watch that. But I, I, I also think that Frankly, Beijing is looking at what happened to Russia and Ukraine and saying, boy, we really don't want that to happen to us in Taiwan. And I think that any sort of Taiwan invasion plans they had in the books are now being looked at anew. I've been told by the White House, uh, they're coming out with their national security strategy later this spring. That's been put off somewhat because of the invasion. They say that they still want to maintain the sort of Indo-Pacific focus, which is to say China. And I expect that they'll do that. But I think there's going to be a lot of new thinking about ways to create new divisions between Russia and China that we didn't have before. Putin, by putting himself beyond the pale the way he has, by by really eliminating any future participation in the international system that he he can't have it anymore, I think has, has uh, created a new wedge between himself and China that wasn't there before. See, an up note. <laughs> yeah. If you can call that an up note. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take uh, it. Relatively speaking, yeah, that's about as up as can be right now. <laughs> Try me next week. <laughs> Michael Hirsch of Foreign Policy. The piece is Putin's Thousand Year War. Thank you so much for coming on Angry Planet and walking us through this. Well, thanks so much, Matt and Jason. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.